Well, you should be at Acts chapter 8, and uh, we're going to continue in our study of the book of Acts, and uh, today we're going to be looking at the kind of faith that cannot save you. You would think that if somebody says, I have faith in Christ, that they're saved. And biblically, that's not always true. We have examples in the Bible of people who claimed to be saved when they were not saved. And this is one of the examples. And so we're going to take a look. If you, look, if you go back or if you remember back in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, our Lord made a prophetic announcement about the ministry of the church in its infancy. He said, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So now we're in chapter 8, and we find in chapter 8, verse 4, Luke is recording. He says, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of, tell me what it says, Samaria. He went to Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And when they had heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city, in Samaria, reminding you again what Jesus said. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. So in chapter 7, we see the Holy Spirit giving life to the church and the apostles who have been trained by our Lord for this time begin to minister the gospel through Jerusalem. The first seven chapters of the book of Acts is about the work of sharing the gospel in Jerusalem, where the Jews are. Why? Because the scripture says that the message of the gospel was first given to the Jew, not to the Gentile, not to the pagans. And that's exactly what happens. And then finally, uh, it, the church, when, by the way, when it happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost that Peter gets up and preaches a sermon, they started that day with 120 believers and by the end of the message and the work of the Spirit that was done there that, that day, 3,000 people were saved and baptized on that first day. And it continued in Jerusalem all the way through up to chapter, through chapter 7. And finally, Luke has to just record it, not as numbers, not as specific numbers. He just says multitudes were being saved and baptized. So everything Jesus said about what would happen in Jerusalem actually happened. And now in chapter 8, we shift. We see a transition. Because Stephen was stoned to death at the end of chapter 7, now great persecution fell upon the church. The Jews were emboldened by the stoning of Stephen, and they went after all the believers that were in Jerusalem. And this caused the believers to spread out from Jerusalem into the neighboring regions. Guess what they were? Judea and Samaria. And so that's what's happening here. Look at verse 7, if you will, in chapter 6. It says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in, Jeru in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests 
became obedient to the faith. We studied Stephen two weeks ago. We started talking about Philip last week. And what happened was Stephen also, who, by the way, was a waiter of tables that the apostles had pointed, one of the young men who was spirit-filled, walked in wisdom, and had a good reputation. He was passing out, distributing bread to the widows, the Jewish widows. And God had something greater for him. Oftentimes, we look down upon our small beginnings. Is that not true? We start out doing something that we think is just nothing. It's just a little thing. It's not a big deal. It's not, it doesn't really matter. I mean, what you're doing for God is so much more important than what I'm doing. No, listen, God is in the little things, just like he's in the big things. And he's looking for those who will be faithful in the little so that he can do even more in them and through them. And here's Stephen, who's just a waiter. Philip was along with him, a waiter. And Stephen, God raises up, puts the message of the gospel in his mouth, and he's performing miracles. People are being healed, signs and wonders, and crowds are gathering. Even priests, Jewish priests, were coming and listening to the message that, that Stephen was preaching, and they were getting saved. And so they arrested Stephen. Why? Because they're losing their priests. I mean, they're turning Jerusalem upside down with this message of the gospel. They arrest Stephen. They make false accusations, bring him in, and they question him about this. And he stands up and gives a defense against the accusations. He, he speaks of everything they talked about that was false, and he spoke the truth. What did he say to them? Here's what he said. There's a reason why they stoned Stephen. Here it is. Because Stephen shared first that you, the Jews, you and me, I'm a Jew as well, we rejected God all the way back to when Joseph was raised up by God the Father to go into Egypt and bring deliverance by food to the 12 tribes of Israel, which didn't exist, but the 12 sons of, of, Israel, of Israel were there. And so here they are, rejecting Joseph. They had him sold off into slavery. Who? The 12 tribes, the patriarchs, the sons had him sold off into slavery. And then Moses comes along 700 years later. And Moses is going to lead, or 400 years later, and is going to lead the Israelites out of bondage in Egypt. He gets them outside the city. They cross the Red Sea by the hand of God. And before you know it, he goes up on the mountain to receive the, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. And the people are complaining to Joshua. Now they want an idol to worship. Moses is nowhere to be found. We want to go back to Egypt. Give us an idol that we can worship. They worship the idols. They rejected the one that God had sent to them. You go from Moses to the prophets in the Old Testament. Stephen said, you rejected the prophets. The prophets foretold the coming of Messiah. And as they would come to you and speak out about sin, you stoned them to death. The prophets. Then we come to the New Testament where Jesus himself, Messiah, shows up in the flesh. And you hate him and reject him. And you have him crucified on a cross. All the way through, you have rejected God's leaders, those that God has sent for you. Well, that is not 
what you call a seeker-sensitive sermon. That is not going to warm people to the message of Christianity. This is what many churches focus on. Let's just make it seeker-sensitive. What would lost people want to hear? Well, in God's church, it doesn't matter what lost people want to hear. What matters is that we're faithful and true to the Word of God. It's what God wants to say. That's what matters. And that's all Stephen did. He got up and he gave a message, and basically he just spoke the truth. They were so infuriated and angry at Stephen. Rage took over, and they picked up stones, and they stoned him to death. And of course, it was, it was Saul, a young Paul, who stood by gathering the coats of those who wanted a little more flexibility when they pulled back to throw the rocks. And then we start the next chapter, and it says, Saul went about bringing great persecution to Christians, ravaging them like a wolf would ravage its prey, ripping the flesh from the bone. That's what Saul was described as, as he was persecuting the church. And so this great persecution happens, and then we come to where we learn about Philip and Philip's work and what God was doing through Philip. Because of this great persecution, because the church was scattered into the neighboring regions of Judea and Samaria. Philip goes to Samaria, and there Philip begins to proclaim the message of the gospel. Signs and wonders followed what he was doing, and people were getting saved left and right. This is a powerful text. Now today we turn to verse 9 in chapter 8, where we're going to learn that in this explosion of salvations, not all faith is saving faith. If you remember from our Matthew study, Jesus said that there would be people who would respond initially, but the word would not go deep, and they would eventually die out because of not wanting to suffer tribulation or because of the love of money, the love of the world, and they would bear no fruit, which is the sign of true salvation. So people who on the surface looked as if they were being saved but when trials and tests came, when the riches of the world came, they fell away. Why? Because they were never truly saved. They bore no fruit. Jesus said, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Only the person who bears fruit, the work of the Father. Only he is truly saved. So here in chapter, chapter 8, we're going to pick up at verse 9, and we see what, what Scott read to us earlier about Simon. We're going to see four characteristics of a false faith in Simon. You might want to write that down. Four characteristics of a false faith. Simon is our example. Let me just go ahead and give those to you now so you have them, and as we go through the text, it will certainly makes sense, I hope. Number one, he had a wrong view of self. His view of self was prideful. Prideful. Secondly, he had a wrong view of salvation. His view of salvation was an outward experience, not an inward experience. It was outward. Thirdly, he had a wrong view of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit. His view of the Holy Spirit 
was as a commodity, something that he could use, something that he could trade in, something that he could make money with. That's how he saw the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, he had a wrong view of sin. His view of sin was dismissive. He wrote it off. Sin's not a big deal. I don't need to focus on that. By the way, one of the great concerns of evangelicalism today, what's a great concern in North America among Christians, is that we have so reduced the gospel down that now we don't even need to address the matter of sin. Not realizing, many believers not realizing, because pastors aren't teaching them the whole truth, they're not realizing that the gospel doesn't begin with Jesus coming with love to save us. The gospel begins in Genesis, where man is made perfect in the eyes of God, and man chose to sin. And sin brought a separation between man and God. And from that moment forward, God had to deal with the sin of mankind. He was storing up wrath against sin, against those who rejected the claims of Jesus Christ. And that's still true today, but the message isn't going out that way. Now it's just simply, hey, just accept Jesus. You know, he loves you. He died for you. Why did he die for me? People wonder, why did Jesus die? And so some people will say, oh, I know why, because he saved me from my sins. But have they thought about what that means? Because the, at the depth, at the root of saving us from sin is something even more powerful. And that is that the salvation that comes through Christ, it removed the wrath of God from us. Sin brought down the wrath of God on us. We're all destined for hell, for damnation. So really, it's more than just forgiving sins. It's through Christ, the wrath of God has been lifted off of you. God placed his wrath, his judgment on his son on the cross. But that's not being taught that's missing from many pulpits today. That's missing in the language that we use to speak about Jesus with other people. What are they saved from if we can't address the sin factor? Why is it good news? It's good news because God said there's really bad news. They need to know what the bad news is. You're destined for hell. But through Jesus Christ, you've been saved. We need to hear that. The whole message of the gospel so he's wrong on all accounts his view of self was prideful his view of salvation was outward his view of the holy spirit was as a commodity his view of sin was dismissive by the way his false salvation is not an outlier this is a very common way that people live today they're just like simon they're just like him what is that they try to come to Christ on their own terms, not his terms. So let's focus if we can, and we'll move quickly through these. First of all, he had a wrong view of self. Look at verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. Remember what I said? He 
has a wrong view of self. He's prideful. He's haughty. Look, telling people that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying this man, this man doesn't possess the power of God. Look at this. This man is the power of God. That is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. Jewish historians even tell us that years later in Rome they had a statue for Simon the Magi, that he was great. He was seen in Rome as a god, a god. So Philip, as, as Philip is ministering by the Spirit in Samaria, many people are being saved and baptized. Even this man Simon, it says, Simon was he believed. He was baptized. But this guy isn't saved on God's terms. He's saved on his own terms. It says that he had practiced magian in the Greek, magic among the Samaritans. He was skilled in the art of the Magi. Remember the Magi who came to recognize the Christ child? They practiced a mix of astronomy and astrology. Magic. And there were pseudoscientists who came after them whose superstitions were very influential, even in the Medo-Persian Empire where the Magi came from. And now they've spread all over. And now even in Samaria you have this, this priest, not a priest of God, but a priest of, the, of, of, of magic. So 40 years after Christ, the term Magi came to refer to all forms of the magical arts, astrology, soothsayers, sorcerers, any pagan who dealt in incantations, anyone who was caught up in charms, spells, divinations, and the horoscope. Like Simon, these guys could pull off some amazing things as magic. They used sleight of hand. They would use deception. They used trickery, much like a magician would today. But we're also operating under demonic power. Some of it was real. It wasn't all fake. Some of it was real. This was Simon. This is the man who found root in Samaria. Now, what made him a, such a winner in Samaria is the fact that the Samaritans were a superstitious people to begin with. When the northern kingdom of Israel fell, back when the kingdom was divided, the northern kingdom was Israel, the southern kingdom was Judah, the northern kingdom out of all the kings that they had ruled, not one of them was godly. They had taken the ways of the pagans who lived in neighboring countries. They had fallen away from God. They were in apostasy. And so God brought down upon the northern kingdom a great calamity. He sent the Assyrians, who were the most ruthless people group on the earth at that time. And they took the wealthy, they took the well-known, they took the middle class, and they hauled them off, some by hook. They would hook your flesh and haul you off to other countries that they had conquered. And they would take in your place those people from other countries, totally pagan, and they would bring them to Samaria. By the way, in the northern kingdom, Samaria was the capital so it was a refined city. Uh, Samaria had a lot of wealth. Samaria had a lot of sharp folks. 
They were all hauled off. The Assyrians didn't want the people to remember one another. They didn't want them to even remember their Hebrew names. So they would separate the children from their mothers and take them to different lands. This was all God's judgment against the apostasy in the northern kingdom. And of course, the southern kingdom, Judah, fell as well. They were hauled off to captivity in Babylon, and they spent decades there in, in Babylon. But here we see that, that the, after the captivity, those Jews who stayed, who didn't leave, those who were of the poorer class, when they brought these other pagan groups in, they began to intermarry. And that's what caused the Jews in the south to hate the Jews in the north, in Samaria. Why? Because they were now half-breeds. They were raising up half-breeds. Their religion was a hodgepodge, a syncretistic approach with all these world religions and a little bit of Old Testament law worked in. But they were not following the one true God. Remember when Jesus approached the woman at Jacob's well in Samaria and she said, you know, we've always thought that you worship God here on Jerusalem, but we also know that, that the Jews worship on the mountain down or the, in, in Jerusalem. And so which is it? And Jesus' response was, believe me, a time's coming and now is when you won't worship on that hill or on this hill, but you'll worship God in spirit and in truth because God is spirit. So even Jesus was planting seeds during his ministry in Samaria, an area that the Jews despised and hated. They didn't understand why Jesus would even go there. I told you uh, before that the sons of thunder, Peter and John, you know, John, these guys. So here they are, and, and they go in, James and John, they go in, and they try to find lodging in Samaria for Jesus, and they can't find it because they had their eyes set on Jerusalem. They were just passing through. And when the Samaritans saw that they were just passing through going to Jerusalem, they hated the Jews too. Then they there's no lodging. You can't stay here. There's no food for you. They went back to Jesus and said, hey, they don't, they're not going to let us in. Jesus, right now, let's strike them dead with thunder and lightning. Let's bring down fire from heaven and kill them all. That was the hatred. Of course, Jesus didn't do that because he was trying to establish that a time is coming when the true gospel will bring Jew and Gentile together. And here now, Philip is preaching in Samaria he is harvesting the seeds that Jesus himself laid, and people are being saved. So much so that the city had great joy, the scripture teaches us. Now, Simon was well received in Samaria because they were a very superstitious people. They too loved the arts, the witchcraft, and Simon was just the gig that they wanted. And so he was respected there. But when Philip begins to preach and people are getting saved, Simon sees that this is, man, our, the people that have been following me, they're following this Jesus now. So he goes along. He doesn't want to separate himself from his own people. And so now he's following. This is where we find Solomon or Simon. 
He had been placed in Samaria by Satan to gain the confidence of the people, to keep them in bondage, to a counterfeit power, literally a satanic power. He was there to oppose the truth, even though on the surface it looks as if he is going along with the truth. It says in verse verse 9 that he amazed the people of Samaria. That means literally he duped the people of Samaria. He bewitched them. He put them under a spell, so to speak. Why? Because he went around saying that he was great and that he had these magical powers, and they they wanted to believe it, and they did. So Simon is a very proud person. Uh, Many scholars believe that this is some of the roots of what would come later as Gnosticism. A Gnostic is one who has more knowledge than everybody else, so he thinks. And there are a lot today who are Gnostics. They think that they've got a special knowledge to the point that they are even like a power of God in themselves. And that's how Gnosticism believes, that there is God in heaven, but he emanates power through characters. Jesus would have been an emanation from God, a power from God, not the Son of God, a power. By the way, that's what the Mormons believe. They don't believe Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. They believe he's like an emanation. But they also believe Joseph Smith was an emanation. They believe that they themselves will be emanations of God. It's all false. There's no truth to it. So so Simon saw himself this way, very prideful. By the way, pride is a barrier to salvation. The two cannot happen at the same time. You can't empty yourself and then fill yourself with pride at the same time. You are either empty of pride or you are filling up with pride. You can't be empty and full at the same time. Salvation requires you to be empty. You come to the end of yourself. You repent of your sin. Why? Because you know that you're a sinner. You know that there's no hope for you eternally apart from the work of Christ on the cross. Therefore, you receive by grace the work of God as a free gift. But to do that, you have to be empty. Nowhere here does it give you any indication from the beginning or the end of this story that Simon was empty of himself. If anything, he's full of himself. So you've got to have knowledge of your your true spiritual condition, that you're dead, spiritually speaking, until the Holy Spirit regenerates you. Pride always dominates sinners. And don't think of yourself as better. You, You used to be dominated by pride as well. And some of us as believers struggle greatly with pride on a daily basis. Amen? Can we be honest about that? How many of you struggle with pride on a daily basis? Raise a hand. All right. If you didn't raise your hand, you're not being honest. We all suffer with that. We struggle with temptation of pride, always. But you've got to empty yourself. Now, salvation, thank the Lord, is not a process. It's an event. It happens once. So to be saved, you've got to be empty. And then once you're saved... Now you're on the road to sanctification, which is a process, being conformed to the image of Jesus. But every day that the Holy Spirit is trying to conform you, your flesh is trying to rise up and show its ugly head. Pride's always looking for a door. 
in your life. You'll come out of church today, maybe the Lord by the Spirit is going to bring you to a point of brokenness and humility, and you're in this wonderful place where God can fill you with His Spirit. You walk out, you've got this sense of peace and joy and contentment, and you get in your car and somebody pulls out in front of you and, ah! Who does he think he is? Who do you think you are? A minute ago, you were lost in the love of God. A minute ago, it was just no rights. Christ has all the rights to my life. Now, all of a sudden, you're demanding rights. Who does he think he is? Pulling out in front of me. That's the, that's the, the pathology of, of sin, right? And pride's at the head of all sin. Listen to what John MacArthur said. I thought this was powerful. He said, in Herod, pride led a king to behead the last of the prophets and the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. In the Jews, pride pretended to have a high regard for the honor of God, and it put the Son of God to death on a cross. In the Pharisees, pride wore the mask of purity and righteousness, when in reality they were filthy and putrid on the inside. Pride cost Nebuchadnezzar seven years of his life. It cost Hezekiah his kingdom. It cost Adam and Eve Eden. It doomed Sodom. It sprang up in the hearts of angels and cost them heaven. It cost Haman his life. It gave Uzziah leprosy. Pride damns men. I I, I just so pray this morning in saying this, I pray that you get it. And that you come up, that comes up in you is this hatred towards sin. That you hate sin the way the Lord hates sin. That you hate pride the way the Lord hates pride. Because as a believer, if you do, if you constantly remind yourself of this, then you will more readily walk in the ways of the Lord. You will walk in the Spirit. You will experience the peace and the joy and the contentment of the Christian life. Even in a fallen, prideful, haughty world, you can have it. Well, what does God say about pride? Job chapter 35, verse 12, there there they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Some of you say, well, I'm not an evil person. That's pride speaking. No, I'm a good person. That's pride speaking. Before God, if you were good enough, why would, you, why would God send his son to die for you? If you're that good, God wouldn't have sent Jesus. He had to send Jesus because you are a wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked sinner. As Paul said, I'm the chief among all sinners. Paul, the first missionary in the early church, he said, I'm a wretched sinner. Except for the work of Christ that's been completed in me. Psalm 12.3, may the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. The Lord wants to cut that off of you. Psalm 101 verse 5, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. What did the Lord say? Arrogance, the way of evil, perversion, speech, I hate it. I hate pride. Proverbs 16.5, everyone who is arrogant in heart 
is an abomination to the Lord. To have an arrogant heart is to be an abomination to the Lord. Some people say, well, how do you know if you're humble? That's the secret to humility. You don't know. Hum humble people don't think of themselves as humble. They just know that they're a sinner that's been saved by the grace of God. And they walk with such appreciation, such thanksgiving, such gratitude to God. They don't think about humility. And that's humility. If you've got to come up with some kind of a measuring stick to find out if you're hum humble, you're prideful because you're developing your own way to humility. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Remember in Luke 18 when Jesus told the story of the two men who went up to the temple to pray? The first was a Pharisee, and he, he, he out loud in the temple, Lord, I'm just thankful I'm not like the sinners around me, like this tax collector right here. Lord, I give a tenth of everything I have to you. I fast twice a week, blah, 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 blah. And then Jesus said, and then there's this tax collector who everybody knows is wicked. And this guy is at temple, and he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. All he can do is with his head down, beat his chest and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. What did Jesus say? Which one of these two went home justified by God? That guy. That's a story, by the way, of a good man who went to hell and a bad man who went to heaven. It's the only way to heaven. Recognize you're not good. Number two, let's fly through these for sake of time. Ver ver number two, uh, Simon had a wrong view of salvation. The outward show is really what he was caught up in. Verse 12, pick up with me. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. Now, you would think, reading that, man, this guy got it. This former sorcerer, he's been changed by God. Look at the next verse. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. His focus was not on the internal work of salvation because he wasn't really saved. His focus was on the external benefits of salvation. Namely, look what that guy can do. Man, what I could do with those kinds of abilities. Salvation always looks good from the outside. Simon saw the people coming to Christ and being saved and baptized, and he thought, I want some of that, man. i got to have me some of that. Besides, there were people who used to follow him, and now they've got a new gig, and I better get on the train 
this salvation train is what they call it. I'm going to get on that train because I want to I make sure I don't lose contact with these people. And if I can get what this guy's got, then I can go ahead and continue to be great in their eyes. It says that he believed, but what kind of belief was it? Was it a saving faith? It couldn't be because he's full of pride. He can't see the inner working of God for the outward manifestation of salvation, being baptized. He saw the great miracles and signs being performed by Philip, and now he's captured, not by an inward work of God in his heart, but by an outward manifestation of power. Listen, it's not like we don't understand Simon. We too can easily be mesmerized by what we see happening in the Christian community, and we want some of that. And so we drift from church to church looking for the latest, greatest move of God, whatever that is. Excuse me, God's moving everywhere. Oftentimes what looks like a move of God on the outside is nothing more than man conjuring up his own righteousness, his own show. Be very careful. Don't get caught up in that nonsense. It says that he believed. I don't think he believed. So he's impressed with the power that Philip possesses. And the reason why he probably is mesmerized by it is because it's not fake like his stuff. This is a step up. If I can somehow get my hands on that stuff... Wow, watch out. And that leads to the next view. He saw the Holy Spirit as a commodity. Holy Spirit's a commodity. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So let me just explain this to you. To authenticate that God is actually saving Gentiles. Remember now, this is all new, that Gentiles are being saved in Samaria. Before this time, it was all happening to the Jew in Jerusalem in that neighboring area. Now all of a sudden, they're hearing about Samaritans being saved. So they send some of the apostles to Samaria to verify that what is happening is truly of God. Plus, to authenticate to the Jew that God is moving among the Gentiles. So when it says that the Spirit had not fallen on any of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, what does that actually mean? Well, because a person can't be saved without the Spirit living inside of them, and that's true, but understand that it was on the day of Pentecost that the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 believers. And everybody who was watching could see it and hear it because now these men who have now received the Spirit are speaking in other nations' tongues, giving thanks to God, talking about the wonders the miracles of God, and all these other people from other nations are hearing in their own language from a bunch of fishermen from Galilee. 
Well, the same thing needed to happen in Samaria, just as the Jews needed a clear sign. Most scholars will tell you because it says that it says that they had laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. How did they know that they received the Holy Spirit? Most scholars will tell you that it's because the same thing that happened in Jerusalem happened in Samaria. They began to speak in other languages about the glories of God. People were hearing. And now people knew this is this is real stuff. And the Jews heard about it. What happened to us, what we heard in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, the same thing's happening in Samaria. This is exciting stuff. So when they laid their hands on the people, they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon, now by the way, and that, that's, we want to take things in the Bible and try to make a life pattern out of it. These are two very unique situations. What happened on the day of Pentecost was unique. It was the actual birthing of the church. It was the coming of the Holy Spirit to empower God's people to be witnesses. It was unique in Jerusalem. And what's happening in Samaria is very unique. Here's what I believe. I believe that when a person is saved, the Holy Spirit of God comes into them. You can't be saved and not have the Spirit of God in you. So, so this idea of, boy, you know, that guy, he's so anointed. You're anointed. The Holy Spirit is in you. It's Stop lifting up man like man's got. That's Old Testament, where the Spirit of the Lord would come upon David, and David did mighty works because of that. We're not in that era. Now the Spirit of the living God lives in us who believe. Amen? Start believing that God can use you to be a witness for him. Verse 18, now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. I want the, I want the Holy Spirit to, how much does the Holy Spirit cost me? How much would it cost me to have some of that Holy Spirit? And, 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 uh, uh, you know, you just hear him saying this, you know. Uh, he's, say, he's being serious. The man's not saved. The whole thing is, how do I benefit from this? How do I make more money from this? I'll pay money. It takes money to make money. Tell me how to get this spirit. Some things never change, by the way. Today, we see the same thing. We have false teachers trying to sell false spirits in the church. That's all that Satan can do. He can't create anything that's true and right. All he can do is try and pervert what is right. That's why it's called false truth, false teacher. It's not real. So Simon's like, I'd like to buy some of that Holy Spirit. I could make a mint on that stuff. He didn't know that nothing that God has is for sale. All that he offers is free, but it's, it's, it's only offered freely to the broken to those with a contrite heart, to those who repent. Repentance, let me tell you what repentance is biblically. First and foremost, repentance is not turning. First and foremost, repentance is thinking differently. A person who is repenting of sin begins to think differently about their sins. The prodigal son in the pig pen, and all of a sudden he comes to his, what does it say? His senses. He began to think differently about his father. He thought differently about his decision to leave with his inheritance and to 
to just plunder the inheritance. He's thinking differently. After he thinks differently, then he turns and goes the other direction. That's repentance. Think differently and then turn. And that's what it takes to be saved. This man has not done that. There's no demonstration of repentance in Simon. So he's exposed himself on the spot, and Peter pounces on him. Look at this, verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter saw it for what it is. You have no part in the grace of God. You have no part in salvation. You have no part in the church. You're not a Christian because your heart is not right. You can't buy the Holy Spirit. And that leads us to point number four. He, Simon had a wrong view of sin. Simon didn't recognize his sin and allow the Holy Spirit to deal with his sin. Simon dismisses his sin. Verse 22, Peter said, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Peter calls him to repentance so that his heart may be forgiven. Peter's telling him, you need to do a 180. Go the exact opposite direction. Renounce your sin. Turn to God. Lay down your sin. Lay hold of Christ. Empty yourself. Become a broken vessel that God himself can fill. Peter lays some heavy language on Simon here. Look at this. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. You know what that means? He says, when he says gall of bitterness, that's the Greek word gall for bile. You are in the filth. You're in the filth of bitterness. You're in the filth of evil. You're in the filth of sin. You're in the filth of unrighteousness, iniquity. You're in bondage to sin and wickedness. You're a slave to your sin. You must repent. This is the message of the gospel. I'm so glad that the church... The early church, this is what they practiced, bold evangelism. They, they spoke the truth. A person can't be saved from anything if they don't think that they're wrong. If there's nothing to be saved from, what are you saving me from? They need to know the truth. Get familiar and get comfortable with sharing the truth with people. Start with Genesis, Adam and Eve. Work your way through to the point where God has a plan to change your life. Jesus, the Son of God, came and he fulfilled the plan, fulfilling all righteousness so that when he hung on the cross, you could be justified by faith. What does justification mean? Just from God's view, just as if you never sinned. Wow. You mean I was a sinner that had no hope of eternal life with God? And then God put his son on the cross for me. He poured out his anger and wrath on his son in my, in my place. And now, if I receive by faith the work of Christ on the cross, God doesn't see me as, as ever having sinned? Yeah. That's it. That's why Paul addressed the churches and said, to the saints in Ephesus. That's how God sees you. Paul's trying to teach us, start walking in who you are. 
So what did Simon do when he heard all this? He passed on the repentance thing. He said, "Ah, maybe not. Tell you what. And then almost in just a mocking way, verse 24, and Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon. Whatever you're talking about right now, why don't you do the praying and just make sure that that doesn't come on me. Does that sound like a man who's been broken by by the Spirit of God? That's a man who's still very much in control of his own terms, and he's rejecting Jesus' terms of peace. Jesus' terms of peace? Yeah, total surrender. So it's possible that you, some of you here, came to Christ with something other than a saving faith. You've never surrendered. To, be, to surrender is to throw your arms up. It's to be arrested, apprehended by God. God came after you, and you did this. You're right, I'm wrong. Forgive me, Lord. There was one time in my life that I had to do this against a wall with my legs spread. It was outside of an Albertsons on a Saturday night about midnight. You're saying, oh my goodness, let's literally listen now. The pastor's confessing his sins. I want it, boy, do I want to hear this. My wife, Rini, was sick, and I went to Albertsons that had, was open 24 hours at that time, and I went to the pharmacy there on the shelf and got some medication. was walking out, and a policeman followed me out, and he stopped me outside the door, and he said, hey, sir, I need you to put your hands against the wall, and I need to check you. And after he did, I said, what's going on? He said, um, there's a lady upstairs in the office who can look through the, the mirror, and she identified you as the man that she came into this building with and that you had abused her. I just came from my wife who's sick. And he said, I need you to stay here. About that time, another cop car pulls up. Both lights are doing this. Here, I'm the, a, pa- a local pastor, man, right outside, right by the liquor store of Albertsons. You know, it's kind of like Walgreens. you got the entrance to the store and the liquor store. I'm right between the two, man. People could drive by. What in the world, Pastor Greg? Oh, I thought, see, I, I told you he was putting on a show. <laughs> and thank the Lord, they went up and showed her my ID and came back and said, sir, you're free to go. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I was arrested, not literally, but in the position of arrest. That's exactly what I had to do to come to Christ. I had no say in the matter. If that woman had said, yeah, he's the guy, they were going to haul me off. I had no say in it. That's you coming to Christ. You have no say in it. You don't make the terms. You just put your hands up. Lord, I surrender. And then the Lord does a marvelous work in your filthy heart. And he puts his righteousness in place of your wickedness. Wow. What an exchange. Are you sure that you're saved? You know, the evidence of salvation is the fruit of the Lord in your life. That's the evidence. Jesus said that. You'll know them by their fruit. 
But if you've never fully surrendered, if pride has somehow hidden from you the, the fact that you've never surrendered, recognize it for what it is as the Spirit is convicting you right now and surrender. I want to invite the elders and the prayer team to come forward right now and stand. They'll spread out along the front. If any of you would like to come to one of them, and they're not there because they have some kind of a superpower. They're not Gnostics or anything or emanations of God. These are just people like you who came to Christ in an act of surrender. They were broken by the Lord. They repented. They came. And if you want to just come and stand with one of them, they would be glad to agree with you as you confess your sin before the Lord. I'm not saying you have to say sin in front of them. I'm saying that you just admit I'm a total sinner. And I, God, I want to surrender by faith to you today. They're just going to stand and agree with you. They're just going to be a support to you. But you don't have to come forward. It's not a work that we're looking for here. It happens in your heart. It happens that quick that you're saved if you surrender. But some of you need encouragement. Some of you need support. Maybe you're going through a tough time. Maybe you need prayer for sickness for a family member, whatever it might be. That's why our team is here. So feel free to come up as we close our time in prayer. Father, I want to thank you for today. I thank you for your word. What, what the word can do if we only listen, if we only receive it and, and, and internalize it. Allow the Spirit to teach us from it. The Word, Jesus, you made it clear that the truth will set you free. Some have been trying to make the Christian life work, and it's possible that they aren't even saved. That, that would be such a miserable way of living. But to fully surrender, as the Scripture teaches, to repent and to just by grace through faith receive the love of God, the forgiveness of sins, to have the, the wrath of God lifted off of us. Oh, what a peace, what a contentment comes over that believer. I pray that for everyone here that isn't sure. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you for being here today, church. It's good to be with you. Let's come back next week and worship the Lord.